And then my final word of welcome is to all of the kids with us. Uh, as you know, when you came, we set aside all of our children's classes, nurse, uh, nursery, and so on. We weren't sure what teachers would be here. So we welcome all of our kids. And as I've said to many parents, as much as I can, relax. We're aware kids make noise. They cry. They drop Cheerios on the floor. They run in and out. It's really okay. As a church family, we welcome and embrace our children. And um, it's the way it is. So anyway... Um, so glad, so glad. And parents, sometimes when kids make noise, they go, oh dear, it's all good. We love them too. So fantastic. With all of that, I would love to have us take our Bibles this morning and turn with me to the gospel of Matthew chapter 13. No, I mean the whole thing. Uh, you know that in our study of Matthew, we have been taking some larger chunks and nowhere is that more evident than today. But I think it works out because all of chapter 13 fits under a unified theme. And it's a whole string of parables that, that fit as a unit. And so to address these kind of together, I think, is a, is a wonderful thing for us. Uh, Matthew 13, the parables of the kingdom. And I'm encouraged. I, I love this section. Jesus wants us to join him. Not only now as part of his family, but at the end of it all, he wants all of us to be there. He wants you there. And if you're a person who's checking it out or thinking about spiritual things, let me just know that God has his eye on you. Let me just say that to you personally. God has his eye on you. He knows your name. He knows your background. He knows you're listening today. And he is eager to have you become part of his family by trusting Christ as your savior even today. So the parables of the kingdom tell us something about God's heart, God's plan, all of that. And I'm so excited to come here. I want to pray for us, for God's help, and uh, we'll get after it, okay? So pray with me, please, if you would. Our Father, it's so good to be together today. Uh, those who are here physically in the room and others who are joining us from other, other places, so good to come together. And we thank you for the work of the Spirit of God in using the Word of God to shape our hearts and always to point us to Christ. And we count on that today. So we, we pray that as we open the word of God, that you would grip us with truth, help us to love the truth, and then to love you, the God who has given it to us. Help us now, in Jesus' name, amen. If you look at your study sheet with me, you get something of an idea of how I want to do this, because I'm not just going to start at verse 1 and work it through that way. I've broken it up just a little differently, and you can see my first section. I want to talk about parables a little bit. This is a big chapter of parables, and so I want to talk about parables, what they're all about, what their purpose is, and how they work, and then then on the next page, I'm going to move, based on that, fairly quickly, I suppose, through the seven stories that all have a kingdom purpose, kingdom message. So I'm going to read, first of all, from Matthew 13, starting in verse 10, all right, where the issue of parables in terms of their purpose is raised by the disciples, okay? So you see there on your study sheet, two purposes, three themes, and the sections that I want to read then. Matthew 13, then starting at verse 10, all right, says this. Then the disciples came and said to him, why do, you speak to, why do you speak to them, the crowds, as we'll see, in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. 
This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. But blessed are your ears, for they see, and or your eyes, rather, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And then again, over to verse 34 and 35. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables and I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Wow. If you read the gospels, you know that Jesus was a a wonderful storyteller. He used all kinds of things to illustrate truth and to capture people's imagination and hearts. He used uh, lilies of the field. He used all kinds of things from nature. And of course, he was the master of the parable. If you have studied some of these things, you know that, that a parable is a story with a point. That's, that's kind of the idea. Now, most parables, just so you know, in terms of your own Bible study, always try to equip you so that as you read and study the Bible, you, you've got a little more help to know how to do that. Most parables, most parables have a single point. And so sometimes when you look at uh, other details, you might say, well, man, that's, I don't see how that fits. In some cases, it's not intended to fit. It's intended to serve the singular purpose of the parable. Now, in some cases, and there's debate about this, just to let you in on the academy, all right? In some cases, there are, there's some debate about some of the parables having other layers to them. So, for example, you'd go to the parable of the, the Good Samaritan and say, so Jesus is answering the question, who is my neighbor? Yes. What about some of the other details? Are those uh, significant as well? And Uh, There are some Bible scholars who would say, yes, there's a little more to that, more than just that singular uh, issue. Uh, Similarly, uh, the story of the prodigal son. Uh, Is there just a single point or are there other elements that are instructive to us? So I just I just raise all that about the way Jesus used parables. Now, in this chapter, there are I'm going to suggest seven. Uh, Some would say, well, what about that one? Uh, I'm not so sure that that's part of the main teaching section. There are seven, I believe. That, that fit together. Stories, wonderful. Now, if you look at your study sheet here, Jesus was asked point blank about the purpose. Why do you use parables? And he gives kind of this enigmatic response, and it comes down to two reasons why Jesus used parables. Now, quickly you notice, with text we haven't read yet, rather than speaking here to his disciples, he's speaking to the crowds. If you look at the the way the gospel is laid out, sometimes it says he spoke to his disciples and the crowd listened. In this case, he's speaking to the crowds. You see that specifically in verse 2 and verse 3. He spoke to the crowd. Now, why? Why use parables then? He says these things. First of all, Jesus uses parables to reveal truth, to reveal truth to his genuine followers. That's one purpose for a parable. To, to reveal truth so that those whose hearts are tuned into the plan and purpose of God and the person of God, they'll get it and they'll remember it. I mean, some of this is, is kind of clear. I mentioned already the parable of the, the Good Samaritan. 
If I just said, uh, hey, you should love everybody, the end. That's not nearly as memorable as telling a story like the Good Samaritan, where you think it over and go, wow, that's really something. So it reveals truth. Now, conversely, then, parables are given to conceal truth, to conceal truth from Jesus' adversaries. So to reveal and to conceal. Wow. Now, if your, your community group meets this week, or you can do this in the privacy of your own home, uh, uh, looking at the community group discussion questions. I ask you to interact with that a little bit. Uh, how do you feel about truth being concealed? Why not just lay it out there for everybody? How, how does that resonate with you? How does it resonate with your theology of how God interacts with people? This enters the whole debate, which we will not today, of the sovereign plan of God and the will of the human being and how this all works. Easy. Not going there today. I'm just saying what Jesus said. Uh, revealing truth. Concealing truth. I understand this text to say revealing truth from those whose, listen, whose hearts are hard. Adversaries already. Jesus knows whose hearts are going to respond and whose hearts are going to say, I'll have none of it. So I understand the concealing of truth that way from an adversarial place rather than those who were just so eager to respond. And, and Jesus says, yeah, not for you today. I don't think so. Well, that gives you a little bit of Something to think about. Now, the seven kingdom parables then, as you see here on your study sheet, they have three common themes. And I I always like to give credit where credit is due, lest you think I'm more creative than I am. So when I pull something out of a book, I always want you to know, you know, the difference between research and plagiarism and all of those things. You have to give footnotes. Otherwise, it's just abject plagiarism. Wouldn't do that. So Douglas O'Donnell, one of the books I'm reading and so enjoying in the Preaching the Word series, edited by R. Kent Hughes. If you want more information, I could tell you. I read that all. Every time I preach a series, New Testament, um, I, I read the Preaching the Word series, homiletical. So he gives these three categories. He subsumes all seven of the kingdoms of the parable, uh, par- of the kingdom, parables of the kingdom, sorry, under these three. So gospel growth, gospel growth for God's kingdom, gospel judgment, For those who oppose God's kingdom and gospel gain for those who join God in his mission. And O'Donnell would suggest that all seven parables fit into those three themes. And I give those to you now so that as we read the parables, you can be having those aha moments and say, oh, I see that. I see this gospel growth for God's kingdom. Amazing gospel judgment, which is a reality Uh, however unpalatable that would be to some, and gospel gain for those who join God in his mission. So I want to get into it, uh, starting at verse 1, and you see on that next section, the seven stories with a kingdom purpose, you see the text that I'm going to read, uh, 1 to 9, etc., and then we'll talk about those seven. All right? So here we go. A lot of scripture reading. Uh, Gird up your loins. Let's take a look at it together. Matthew 13, starting verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. Isn't this picturesque? Thank you, Matthew, for telling us. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, 
Some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And then down to verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. And as for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. And as for what was sown among thorns, this is he who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. He put another parable before them. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. And while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, what do you want us to, then do you want us to go and gather them? And he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather my wheat into the barn. He put another parable before them saying the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field it's the smallest of all seeds but when it has grown it's larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches he told them another parable the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened and then down to verse 36 that he left the crowds and went into the house His disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom and the weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, 
let him hear. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net, which was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore, sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who's been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of the house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And I'll stop right there for the moment. Wow. Story upon story, parable after parable, parables of the kingdom. Now, if you look at your study sheet, you see that I have put these into five categories, those seven, because in a couple cases, I see two teaching a similar point. Okay. A couple of them back to back, a couple of them separated, but I think on the same theme. And so uh, I, w- I want to just comment uh, briefly, really, on each of these. Uh, first of all, we read the parable of the sower, which, which is, shows up in all three Gospels, uh, synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And interestingly, uh, we often call it the parable of the sower. I, I really think a better name would be the parable of the soils, because it's really about the soils, isn't it? It's not so much the sower. It's talking about the response of people. And, and folks, listen, we often hear in our biblical counseling seminars and so on, we talk about the importance of the heart, don't we? That's a biblical value from start to finish. God is never just after your external behavior, ever. When God seeks to change you, he never just goes after your outward habits, right? He always goes after your heart. Over and over, you hear Jesus saying, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what's in your heart comes out, whether your words or your behavior. God always cares about your heart. So in a sense, the parable of the sower is the parable of the, the soils. The parable of the soils, the response of the heart. Now, in this case, the parable of the sower, well known, I think one of Jesus' best known, looks at the three different ways where people reject uh, Christ and his message. And I I just give you three different reasons why that is so, as I understand the the point of the parable, as Jesus himself explains it. First would be hard hearts, just hard hearts. That's the, that would be the pathway where it's packed down and there's no place for the seed to really penetrate, germinate. So hard hearts, people who, as I mentioned last week, use the analogy, stiff arming God, it's hard hearts. Second, a shallow response. Sometimes there is an initial response, but nothing deep. Doesn't penetrate to the heart. Shallow response. And then finally, the love of pleasure. The love of pleasure. If you take a look, uh, as those, those three, I think, surface from the text, 
Uh, I think that explains why there's a response in some case and other cases there isn't. Now, of course, Jesus also comments on those who have good soil and their hearts welcome Christ and his truth. And they, what do they do? They bear fruit. That's what they do uh, when someone responds from the heart with genuine faith. Now, interestingly, Jesus says, or he indeed bears fruit. In one case, 100, another 60, another 30. Sometimes people read that and say, so what that's meaning is some people bear fruit a little and maybe not much and some a lot. Actually, by the, by the farming industry, to even bear, bear fruit uh, at the category of 30 would be really, really a good crop. That's not, that's not bad. So 30 would be very encouraging. It'd be great. 60 would be, be right at the edge of, of, of absolutely amazing. And 100 would be, oh, my goodness sakes, you know, call your mother. It's, uh, there's a harvest. So uh, these are all, this is all about fruit. It's all about producing. And not, not earning your salvation. And make, make sure you get this point, all of us. This is not about bearing fruit to earn God's favor in any way. Even as a Christian, you understand. Our hearts, uh, God changes our hearts. Our hearts respond to him. And God intends it out of our hearts, responding to him, that our lives would bear fruit. We are not at that moment earning God's favor. God could not love you any more than, than he already does. He will not love you any less on the days that you mess it up. You are in Christ if you know him. So uh, this is about bearing fruit as a response to what God is doing in our hearts. The parable of the sower is one of the two parables explained by Jesus, isn't it? Uh, The other parables, there's not so much of an explanation. Now, the parable of the wheat and uh, the weeds, if you will, that comes up in verse 24. Some of you who have the King James, New King James, NAS, you would see in your text, the wheat and the, what's the cool word? Tares. Isn't that more colorful? Weeds. I mean, seriously, that's very nondescript. So the, the, uh, there's an there's a idea that Jesus is communicating here, and uh, there's a term and there's a, a, a specific weed that fits here. Uh, I'm going to leave all the, uh, of those categories aside for another day. But what, what the, the, the word picture that Jesus is after is the weed that's here looks like wheat, grows like wheat, doesn't produce the head. So for a while, you could think as the two are growing that it's all just wheat. But then there's a moment when you say, okay, something's going on here. And my goodness sakes, this will bring all kinds of discussion, again, if your groups meet, or in your own mind, if you meet with yourself. Uh, Some of our recent comments and sermons about texts such as 1 John 2.19 where it talks about people who for a time look like believers, act like believers, behave like believers, and leave. And we're left to wonder, is this a prodigal, truly born again, saved, washed by the blood of the Lamb, knows Jesus, and they'll come back? Or is this a person who never knew Christ? Which I think, I referenced 1 John 2.19, that's the idea in that text. They went out from us. But they were not really of us. If they'd been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out, John says, so that it'd be evident that they're not really of us. No heart, no true heart change. Sobering. Now, we, we don't know those things, do we? 
Whose heart do you really know? Let me just say, barely yours. Certainly not anybody else's. So uh, we judge other people's hearts to our own detriment. Do you really know what's going on in somebody? No, you don't. No, you don't. God knows. That's his business. But the wheat and the tares, I, I call it here a sobering story about discernment and righteous, righteous judgment. That's the little fill-in if you are keeping track of those things. Righteous judgment. This, of course, fits under the category of those, those three themes that I referenced in the category of judgment because it references there the harvest time where the fruit, the, the, the wheat is gathered into barns and the weeds are burned. And Jesus, again, in explaining this over in verse 42, verse uh, that describes this fiery furnace idea, similarly to verse 50, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Folks, you know, sometimes today among the discussions in theology, uh, there has been one in the last decade, a big discussion about the nature of hell. How does, how does the traditional understanding of hell fit with what we see described in the Bible as a loving God. And today in three minutes, I'm not going to deal with the whole thing. So, you know, uh, but I am going to say this, the Bible is very clear. Make no mistake that there is a place in the presence of God. The Bible calls heaven for those who've genuinely trusted Christ as their savior. And equally, ladies and gentlemen, hear this today, make no mistake The Bible talks about an eternal place of suffering for those who say, I don't want any part. A place that's absent the presence of God in that sense. Presence in his judgment, but in terms of the presence of his love. For those who say, I don't want any part of it. It isn't that God says, well, I know you really want into heaven and I'm just not going to let you. Oh, hold on. This is a place for those who stiff-armed God from the beginning to the end and said, I don't want any part of him. And there's a sense in which God then says, I'm going to give you what you wished for. And this is what it looks like when I'm not there. Now, sobering truth. You get to percolate on all of that. But when you do, you read the Bible. And I've seen people kind of mess with the text in such a way that you say, how'd you get that? This, this is supposed to be sobering truth. And it is supposed to not scare people into God's kingdom. But you know what? There's a time and a place where the doctrine of hell kind of should be frightening. And if it isn't, you're not reading the Bible very well. So I know now and then you hear people waxing eloquent about, you know, hellfire and brimstone, how awful that is. And I'd say, yes, you're right. It is an awful, awful place to go. You don't want to go there. And guess what? If you hear me today, you don't have to go there. You today can trust Christ as your Savior, be born again, and not worry about the fire of hell. How about that? So rather than shake your fist at the doctrine that the Bible so clearly teaches, just knock it off and come to Christ. Is that clear? You don't have to, you don't have, don't have to argue about it and you don't have to go. You just trust Christ as your savior. Humble yourself, acknowledge your need of, of, of Christ and come today, come today. Don't even have to think about it again. Well, righteous judgment. It's supposed to be sobering. Now, if you come down to verse 33, uh, sorry, verse 31, there are two that I think kind of fit together. The mustard seed and the parable of the leaven, I think, make the same point. Kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard, mustard seed. 
a man took and sowed, and this little tiny seed grows into a tree, a large tree. Now, some people have, find, have found fault here with Jesus and says it's the smallest of all seeds. And they say, well, actually, we discovered in this other country, I don't think Jesus was intending to make a botanically accurate description here. It is the smallest of all seeds found in that area, from what I understand. Uh, but small seed grows into a tree. You say, well, it doesn't say, it says here, the, you know, larger. Uh, what about a sequoia? Oh, stop. That's not the point. Tiny seed, large tree. Tiny seed, large tree. Have we got this? Perfect. Thank you. That's what we're after. Pick at the details. That's not it. No, the kingdom of heaven is like this little seed that grows. And it's amazing. And again, it's like leaven. That a woman took and put in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. And again, I've read the the different books and so on. um, Different ways people have dealt with this. Some say, well, leaven's always a type of sin. And so therefore, this is a bad. I don't think that's the point here. I don't think it's about sin going everywhere. And neither do I think that when it talks about the, the birds. Again, I've heard this. The birds in the tree, the birds in the previous parable are the ones who eat all the seeds. So this is a bad, I don't think it's a bad thing. I think we're missing the point. I think both of those parables, you can disagree if you like, Lord love you. But those two parables fit together to say, do you see the amazing growth? You can hardly explain any other way. This tiny seed grows. Leaven infiltrates bread. And my goodness, it grows. Can you explain it? I ask you here, can you, can you explain it? Uh, maybe you can. Maybe you're smart that way. You went to school, and you can explain exactly how leaven works. I won't call on you then. You're not the one I'm after. This is, this is for the normal person. Can you explain how leaven works or yeast? Absolutely not. Even you add hot water. I know, I know, I know I've used it. Can you explain it? I said, no, you can't. Neither can you fully explain the work of the Spirit of God taking the Word of God, planting in the hearts of people to where they're born again. Nor can you explain the growth of God's kingdom from the very beginning, way back, down to the promised plan of God, Walt Kaiser, Abrahamic covenant, Davidic covenant, God's plan all the way down, the promise of the kingdom through the prophets, the coming of Jesus, the growth of the church in the church age. Neither can you explain how all that works. It's the work of the Spirit of God. Matthew 16, Jesus says, I will build my church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Can you explain all that? Absolutely not. Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall. God's program will continue. Make no mistake. I think that's the point of those two parables. And now you hit that section as we read it. Uh, The previous parable explained. I come down to verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. In his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, buys the field again. It's like a person, a merchant, finding fine pearls. I think, again, these two have a similar point. Just different ways of looking at it. I think in both cases, they're pointing out that being part of God's kingdom is so important, it's worth sacrificing, sacrificing everything else to get it. I think that's Jesus' point. If you were to find a buried treasure, don't you think you'd want to go get it? Now, again... People who pick look at this and say, well, you really should go to the current owner of the field and say there's $5 million buried in your backyard. That's what you're supposed to do, not just make them an offer. You're missing the point. Uh, That isn't it. Um, This isn't about real estate. It's about sacrificing, get a hold of that treasure. It's about the merchant who sees that pearl of great price and says, I will sell everything to get it. 
This is the Apostle Paul. I give you the reference in Philippians chapter 3, who says, no, I, I, I will let everything go. All of my worldly credentials, I lay them all aside in view, he says, of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, through whom I've suffered the loss of all things. Count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ and may be found, what is it, in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that righteousness that comes through faith in Christ Righteousness, which comes from God on the basis of faith. I count it all loss. Great credentials, forget it. Who cares? I want to know Christ. I want to be found in him. The great, the great value of God's, God's plan, God's person, God's kingdom. Now, again, Jesus comes in verse 47. This kingdom of heaven is like a, a net. This is another parable that fits in the category of judgment. This end of the age, this harvest, it's used in another earlier parable, but here it's the end of the age, a large fishing vessel pulling out of the sea, fish of every kind, and a sorting, a sorting taking place. Those who belong to Christ, those who do not. Now, uh, again, I think you can, you can overwork such parables, but it's very clear that this one is about the end of the age and a, and a, a picture of judgment. May I say, listen carefully, please. Righteous judgment. Please get this. God never makes mistakes. He knows those who are his. I, I say that to you who maybe struggle with the prodigal. Listen, God knows those who are his. He never loses track. Not even once. He always knows. So this sorting is not haphazard. It's not random. It's not somebody going, uh, you know, looks good, looks bad. It's no, no, no. God never makes mistakes. His judgment is always accurate. I cannot tell you the number of times I have said this to people, sometimes in a time of crisis or a time of death where somebody has died and you say, yes, but they were in a place of rebellion and, 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 oh my goodness, I know there was genuine response. I, I am no reader of anybody's heart. But I know this, God knows those who are his, Paul will say to Timothy. God knows those who are his. He never loses track, not even once. Now, this little paragraph, verse 51 and 52, uh, some people say because it says kingdom of heaven is like, this must be another parable. No, no, I don't think it's that. I think it's drawing a conclusion. Every scribe, every teacher who's been trained about this kingdom of heaven is like a master of the house, bringing out of his treasure what's new and old. I think that's talking about old covenant, old Testament, all the details there and all that Jesus is bringing. I think he's saying simply in these two verses, everybody who's going to be teaching about the kingdom of heaven needs to understand the old the Old Covenant, Old Testament, and all that Jesus is bringing, bring them together. You'll be able to teach well. I think that's the point of those two verses. You can work on that a little bit more detail. On your study sheet, there's a part called response to God's word. And it's very interesting to me that even after these seven parables of the kingdom, Matthew concludes this, what I look at as a section by looking at the response of people. We've been seeing this over and over in the Gospel of Matthew, the differing responses from the heart to Jesus. We saw it last week, three different responses. So here again, it says this, when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, went to his hometown. You can see a problem coming here. 
He taught them in the synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom, these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did he get this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. You see that? Matthew's bringing this in for a reason. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, in his own household. He did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. He closes this big teaching section by taking them to another location and saying, and look, here again, people who don't believe. Why not? Their hearts are hard. Now, I brought a couple things here today. I don't always have little gadgets up here, but today I do. And I, I did this knowing there'd be a lot of kids in the room. And besides, some of you guys are just big kids at heart anyway. But uh, I, I brought a couple of things that helped me to communicate what I think is the, really the bigger issue here in this text. And that is to be part of the family of God. In this case, our preaching sections, God's kingdom. And I've given you some eschatology stuff along the way in the future kingdom. Not my purpose today so much. But to say this, to be part of God's family, part of God's kingdom, to be there on that final day is just worth everything. Some of you, if you're, especially if you're a child, you've met my pet rock before. This is my pet rock. I've had this, I don't have it named, but this is my rock. I've had this with me now for uh, a very, very long time. My first backpack trip was up in the Cascades. I was 14 or so, and I went with a group out of Island Lake Camp, Christie Camps, uh, now, and uh, we went up in the Cascades someplace, and a whole bunch of, you picture this, a whole bunch of 14-year-old boys, two leaders with us, and uh, one day, the leaders didn't feel like hiking, and all us boys did. And there were some hills. We were camped at a lake, uh, and uh, Williams Lake, I think, and there was this, all these mountains. And we went, huh, let's go climb them. And the leader said, well, we'll be right here. Shh, don't tell. It's terrible. They sat at the campfire, and up we went, free-handed up some rock walls. Who knew? We weren't going to fall. We're, we, we got this. Well, at the top of one of these hills, there was an old mine like an old mine shaft cut into solid rock. It wasn't, don't worry, it wasn't like we're going to die there because you could see the end of it, and it was horizontal. And so we were looking there going, whoa, this is awesome. We got to go. Uh-huh. There were rocks inside. Somebody had been up there and probably 30 feet in, and I picked up the biggest one I could find, and it's been with me ever since. I backpacked it out. And if you look at this, you'll know why. You know what? I was 14 years old. I thought, praise the Lord, I can skip college and go into work. Because this, this thing right here, this rock is worth like $5 million. And, you know, I'm going to get home and somebody's going to say, where you get it? And I'm going to say, I don't, I'm not going to tell. And they're going to pay me a lot of money. And Jay's done. This is great. Well, $20. Iron pyrite. Fool's gold. But I hoped it was a treasure. I carried this this in my pack eight miles out with all my other stuff. I paid a price for it because I had hoped that it was worth something. Okay. Not so much, but people do things. You do things when you think something is a value, you sacrifice for it. In fact, you are now many of you sacrificing time and sleep and effort to get what you think is valuable. Let me tell you something. Being a follower of Christ, 
be a part of his family by trusting Christ is worth everything. Okay? Not fool's gold. Not 20 bucks. I'm just telling you, people do all kinds of things when they think something's valuable. Now, this, of course, recognize that? No, really, it's a gold pan. You might say, it looks like a, no, it is a gold pan. This belonged to Kathy's grandpa, and it was one of those things years ago uh, that when I, when we got married a bunch of years ago now, and I met Kathy's grandpa, went through his shop, he was telling me all the stuff, you know how grandpas do. And this I got here, and then he told me about his gold pan that he panned for gold with in the streams of Montana back in the 30s and 40s. And then some years later, when it came time to clean out Grandpa's garage, there were a couple things I said, can I have that? What does that symbolize? It's the search for something valuable, isn't it? It's it's hoping, it's it's. Climbing a hill and going out in the backwoods and swirling stuff around and, and just hoping against hope you'll find something valuable. Grandpa clearly didn't because he didn't leave $5 million to the grandkids. But, but it's, it's the dream. It's the hope. It's the search. And in Matthew 13, if these parables are anything, they're an explanation of something that's valuable. God's kingdom. God's program. Being a part of his family. Valuable above all else. I give you a few things to think about here. Warning against unbelief. A call to come. If you've, if you've heard the gospel and you've kind of just said, you know, I'll think about it. I'll think about it. I'll think about it. You're stiff arming God today. Today's the day to knock that off. To see Christ as valuable. To see yourself as a sinner in need of a savior and to come to him. Today's the day to do that. These parables, of course, I say, give encouragement. You read all of those things. Well, I'm going to pray for us. There are things you want to talk about later. You come talk about those things with me. Questions you have about anything I've said. Uh, I would welcome your conversation. I'd love to have you stand with me. And let's invite God to close our time as we pray together. Father, I thank you so much for the morning. I thank you for these parables, these stories with the point. All of which point us to you. The kingdom of heaven is like, God's kingdom is like, yes, a future coming kingdom, I know. And yet God's rule and reign, even now in our own hearts and our lives, as we follow Jesus. And our Father, I pray that all in the sound of my voice and joining us from other places and times, that in each heart there would be a, a tenderness to the things of the, of the word of God, genuine faith in Christ and any for whom that is not true, that, that here in this group or watching or listening later, that even there, there might be a response from the heart saying, yes, today, even right here, I will trust Christ as my Savior from sin, acknowledging my need. Oh, I've done wrong. Jesus, dying on the cross in my place, rising from the dead, our Father, drive those truths home in us. Help us to value Christ, to see him as valuable today, worthy of trust and genuine faith. Father, as we go from this place, pray for safety in all of our travels, for joy in these days ahead as we, we experience the snow and enjoy its beauty and hopefully get outside and play a little bit. Thank you for the joy of our kids. Grateful for the memories we're making even now. We trust you for the week ahead. In Jesus' great name, amen.